This morning's reading comes to us from the book of Judges, chapter 4, the message paraphrase. The people of Israel kept right on doing evil in God's sight. With Ahud dead, God sold them off to Jabin, king of Canaan, who ruled from Hazor. Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim, was the commander of his army. The people of Israel cried out to God because he had cruelly oppressed them with his 900 iron chariots for 20 years. Deborah was a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth. She was judge over Israel at that time. She held court under Deborah's palm between Ramah and Bethel in the hills of Ephraim. The people of Israel went to her in matters of justice. She sent for Baak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, it has become clear that God, the God of Israel, commands you. Go to Mount Tabor and prepare for battle. Take 10 companies of soldiers from Naphtali and Zebulun. I'll take care of getting Sisera, the leader of Jabin's army, to the Kishon River with all his chariots and troops, and I'll make sure you win the battle. Barak said, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. She said, of course I'll go with you. But understand with an attitude like that, there'll be no glory in it for you. God will use a woman's hand to take care of Sisera. Deborah got ready and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak called Zebulun and Nephali together at Kadesh. Ten companies of men followed him, and Deborah was with him. It happened that Aber the Kenite had parted company with the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' in-law. He was now living at Zainanim Oak near Kadesh. They told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera immediately called up all the chariots to the Kishon River, 900 iron chariots, along with all his troops who were with him at Herosheth Hagoyim. Deborah said to Barak, charge, this very day God has given you victory over Sisera. Isn't God marching before you? Barak charged down the slopes of Mount Tabor, his 10 companies following him. God routed Sisera, all those chariots, all those troops before Barak. Sisera jumped out of his chariot and ran. Barak ch chased the chariots and troops all the way to Herosheth Hagoyim. Sisera's entire fighting force was killed. Not one man left. Meanwhile, Sisera, running for his life, headed for the tent of Jael, wife of Heber the Kenite. Jabin, king of Hazor, and Heber the Kenite were all on good terms with one another. Jael jumped out to meet Sisera and said, Come in, sir. Stay here with me. Don't be afraid. So he went with her into her tent. She covered him with a blanket. He said to her, Please, a little water. I'm thirsty. She opened a bottle of milk, gave him a drink, and then covered him up again. He then said, stand at the tent flap. If anyone comes by and asks you, is there anyone here, tell him, no, not a soul. Then, while he was fast asleep from exhaustion, Jael, wife of Heber, took a tent peg and hammer, tiptoed toward him, and drove the tent peg through his temple and all the way into the ground. He convulsed and died. Barak arrived in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to greet him. She said, come, I'll show you the man you're looking for. He went with her, and there he was, Sisera, stretched out, dead, with a tent peg through his temple. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. The people of Israel pressed harder and harder on Jabin, king of Canaan, until there was nothing left of him. 
This is the word of the Lord. So many of you may know the name Constantine. Uh, he was a pagan monotheist, and uh, he was a sort of a devotee to the, to the sun god. And before he was getting ready for a battle, some of you may, may know this story, uh, he saw, and his whole army saw in the sky, uh, by the sun, the sign of a cross. And by the sign of the, a sign of the cross, like perhaps you might see behind me shining, uh, it said, in this sign, conquer. So Constantine and his army see this, they're kind of amazed, they think, oh, this must be a sign from the, the sun god that we're going to win the battle that we're about to enter into. Constantine goes to bed that night in preparation for the battle the next day, and while he's asleep, he has a vision where he believes that Christ appears to him and says, in this sign, you shall conquer. You shall win against your enemies. So he wakes up the next morning and he realizes, okay, wait, this isn't the sun god who's telling us we'll have victory, it's the god of the Christians. And so he takes the sign of the cross and he has it imprinted on all of the soldiers' shields. And as they enter into battle and they win, at the very end, he attributes this win to the Christian God and he converts away from uh, monotheism and paganism into this belief in Christ as the one true king and God because they gave, God, that God gave them victory in battle. It's interesting to think about that story juxtapositioned against the story that we heard read today. Um, we know throughout uh, the Bible, or I should say throughout the book of Judges specifically, there's this cycle um, that occurs. And the book of Judges, if you think about it, if you actually, the, the scholars believe that there's this cycle that occurs in the book of Judges that you see happen over and over again, where basically Israel, it tells us, sins in some way. In this story today, we don't find out what Israel's sin is. But in other stories, we often find out that Israel's sin apparently was like worshiping other gods or treating foreigners in a poor way, uh, these types of things. And then once they've sinned, they are conquered and oppressed. And then after they're conquered and oppressed, usually for a period of 20 years, 40 years, 30 years, they cry out, God, please deliver us from these people. If you, if you just deliver us, if you just give us a moment of, of relief, we'll turn back to you and worship you again and we'll never do it again. And so then God comes and raises up a deliverer. Today in our passage, that would be Deborah. And then Deborah says, okay, enough is enough. We need to fight back. God's going to give you victory over your enemies. Peace comes to the, to the Hebrew people. And then guess what happens again? After a little while, they start sinning and then conquer and oppressed, cry out, delivered peace. Happens six times in the book of Judges. We see six judges rise up and go through this cycle. Today's story is the fourth time it's happened. So it's going to happen two more times in this book. The other thing that's interesting to think about is that this, these stories, scholars believe, were written 650 years after they happened. Okay, so literally all this stuff plays out, the story we heard read today, 650 years pass, and then they write it down. And they write it down when they're in Babylon, and Babylon is not the place they want to be because while they're in Babylon, they are oppressed again. And they have been wrapped, they've been ravaged out of their land, and everything's taken from them, and they are in a place of oppression. And so in that place of oppression, you know what they do? They sit down and they write the book of Judges. Well, remember, we're oppressed now, but we have this beautiful history that we've passed down orally, that God has delivered our people six times before in the time of Judges. God will deliver us again from the Babylonians. And so with that in mind, they write the book of Judges to what? Give hope to the people. So that they don't run out of hope and run out of energy and think God has just given up to us. God will never take care of us. They look back. I don't know about you. That's exactly what I do, right? Whenever I'm frustrated or I feel like the odds are stacked against me or life isn't good or life's never going to get better or how am I going to get through this, I look back and I think 
Here are some key and pivotal moments when God carried me through. Same thing that created the book of Judges. Okay? Remember, it's an oral tradition, though, so they've, they've, they've heard it passed down from generation to generation, these stories. And so I imagine over 650 years playing telephone, we all know sometimes probably what could happen there. But we also, so I, I don't think we need to look at this story and go, every little fact is particularly just right. It's the heart of the message that is wanting to be written down here. So we know that from this book, which I think is really important when we come into this text because we have to think about it in the same way that we think about it and in the same way that Constantine thought about it when he saw a sign in the sky and had a dream, which maybe was just bad pizza the night before. And he thinks God is on his side and their side as they conquer a group of people. Just like perhaps the Hebrew people thought God was on their side and giving them victory. They were looking back and trying to make sense of what happened. So here's something I want us to think about. When I wrestle with this passage, one of the things that hits me really hard is, did God actually tell them to kill people? And this isn't the only instance. To go into war and to just destroy them all and make sure, as this passage says today, not one person from the army was standing in the end. Did God say that? Or do they look back at history and they say, Clearly, God was on our side, so clearly God gave us the victory, and God told us to do that thing. Clearly, God wants us to not be oppressed, and our only way of deliverance was to kill our oppressors at that time, so we did it. So, of course, that's what God wanted from us. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that is exactly the story in the narrative today, but as we look at the story of Deborah, I want us to sort of try to see ourselves and our own story and our own wrestling and evolution of understanding God and God's heart because ultimately, yes, there's a lot of murder and violence in here, but ultimately the book of Judges and the book of Deborah is just a people who are in a tough place trying to find a way out and they believe that God wants them out and they believe this is their only way out. And they go through the cycle six times in this one book alone. So the story begins, right, where Deborah, it says in verse 4 through 5 that, that, uh, that, our, uh, that Deborah was a prophet and a wife. She was a judge of Israel at the time. I, I think it's interesting, as I, as I did a lot of studying and reading this week, <laughs> I, I listen when I do reading and studying. I listen to conservative opinions, moderate opinions, liberal opinions. And so I hear a little bit of everything, and quite frankly, there's always a little bit of something in all of it that I can use, but there's also a little bit of something in all of it that I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. Okay? And so one of the more conservative side of things that I was listening to this week, I really wrestled with their opinion about why they highlighted that Deborah was a wife and a woman. They highlighted that she was a wife and a woman in this passage, they believe, because there was clearly no other men at the time who could raise up and deliver the people. And so God was like, fine, if there's no men, I'll just use a woman. And I thought, that just does not sit right with me. That God would ever think in that manner. Perhaps God just looked upon Deborah and thought, Deborah is a competent, capable woman who is full of courage and boldness more than the leader of the army because he doesn't even want to go into the battle. And God tapped Deborah on the shoulder just because she was made in the same image of God that man was. Made of the same dust, given the same spirit, has the same capabilities and abilities calls this woman Deborah. Deborah goes to Barak, says, right, the, we've been oppressed by the Canaanites for 20 years. Enough is enough. I'm tired of being oppressed. We need to do something. I believe deep in my heart that God is going to give us the victory over this battle. 
So they go to battle, and the thing, reason they win the battle is kind of interesting, because where they go and they get ready for the battle, it's by a river. In the chapter after this, Judges 5, it's a different telling of this story from Deborah's perspective. And it's kind of interesting because it's, from, it's, it's a female perspective from Deborah, but also it's written in a poetic form in like they would have, it would have been sung by the Hebrew people, which is another reason why it's really neat to be able to have an oral tradition because people will remember songs, don't they? Pastor Melinda talked about it in the first week of the series that the one thing that her grandfather, I think it was grandfather or grandmother, I can't remember which one, stuck with her was, a, was songs as she went through loss of her mind. And so it's kind of interesting to think that songs stick with us. And so stories were often told through song because they would stick down from generation to generation. And then we have it written in Judges 5. And so we see in Judges 5 a depiction of this story from a Deborah's or female perspective. But we also see a depiction of this story in an interesting way that it talks about in, De- in, in Judges 5 what it was like in heaven that was pulling the strings for all this to come together. That's their imagination. Was anybody in heaven? No, nobody was in heaven. Nobody knew how heaven was pulling the strings for the war, but they thought that God was. That clearly if they won, God must have been pulling the strings in their favor, right? And if God, if they had lost, God was not pulling the strings. We see that same thing in the story of Constantine in the beginning, right? We won. What if, what if Constantine had lost that battle? It would have changed everything. But Constantine looked back and went, oh, clearly I won because God was in our favor and we saw this sign and it must put it all together and this is what it means. The reality is, is when we look at this story, we find out that they do win, and they win because the Canaanites were arrogant. The Canaanites had ten chariots, and where do they go down and meet the Hebrew people who are gathered and ready for war? Well, Judges 5 tells us that they meet, they, they meet by a river, and it's springtime. And a river by springtime is a little muddy. And you take your 10,000 chariots down there to go to a battle, what's going to happen? You're going to get stuck. So all of a sudden, this superpower who had all these chariots and could, could do anything and could win, right, because the Hebrew people didn't have nearly the force that the Canaanites did, they lose. They lose. And what do the Hebrew people do looking back 650 years later? They go, clearly that was God giving us the victory. Or maybe, maybe it was the Canaanites just not being so smart in their battle that day. Maybe they just got really arrogant, and it happened to be the very thing that led to the deliverance of the Canaanite people. Maybe. President uh, Nixon said, My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. President Nixon has quite a history, some of the things we like to remember, some of the things we don't. But I don't know about you, but I love that quote. And I love that quote because I think that it's really, really important to, to remember that so often when the odds are stacked against us, when we make certain decisions, we always want to feel like God's on our side, right? We always want to feel like we're the right ones instead of the posture that maybe sometimes we are wrong. Sometimes we don't see God the same way that we need to see God, or sometimes we don't see people in the full picture that we need to see people. Deborah, in this story, deeply believes that God must be on their side. But where is God in all this? Where is, what is God's will for the Hebrew people? What is God's desire for the land or who should live in it? Better question, maybe the most important question of the sermon today, perhaps God's desire is not concerned with who uh, should live on a certain piece of land, and perhaps it's how the people who live on that land treat each other. Perhaps that's actually God's concern, while everyone else is focused on who should actually live on the land. 
We have a luxury, and Danny, you highlighted this, we have a luxury of living in a time when we have the teachings of a 30-year-old bronze-skinned Galilean carpenter churn rogue rabbi who came on the scene and tells us, as he told the Hebrew people and as he told the Gentiles and all those who were sat at his feet over the last 2,000 years, you've heard it said, but I say, right? You've heard it said, but I said, say. In, in one instance, he said, you've heard it said that your ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. We have the luxury of having a, being on the, a different side of the continued narrative. But throughout the book of, of the Hebrew Bible, this was not an understanding of who and what God expected of them. And quite frankly, when Jesus bursts onto the scene and tells them, yeah, 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 just so you know, I, I really rather you not kill each other. And also, maybe, maybe deal with your anger and your animosity toward each other, because if you let that fester too long, you're just going to keep killing each other. I know it doesn't seem bad to be angry with each other. And you know, anger happens. But if you don't do something with that anger, that anger just turns to bitterness and resentment and then deep hatred and then murder. So let's just deal with the root issue here. We had the luxury of the leaning upon the teachings of Jesus. Stan Mitchell, who's a pastor of an interdenominational church like ours, in, uh, was a pastor, not, no longer now, uh, at a church in uh, Nashville called Grace Point. He said Jesus saved God for him. Jesus saved God for him. Because he said, if, if, if all I had was the Hebrew Bible, I feel like I would have a very impartial picture. And I'll tell you this right now. Even though we have the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible, Jesus does save God for me. But also, there are still things that Jesus says that I wrestle with. There are still things that Paul said that I wrestle with. Like, Jesus isn't completely saved for me in every single way. Like, I still have to wrestle. Like, my understanding still continues to evolve. And there are still so many answers I don't have and things I wrestle with. It's not that Jesus all of a sudden answers it all for us, but perhaps he puts a little bit of the puzzle together more for us. So God's side, my side, whose side, Canaanite side, Hebrew side, Republican side, Democrat side, moderate side, Israel, Palestine, where? Whose side? Where, where's God at in all this? Perhaps maybe even the question that Abraham Lincoln asked, is it not? during the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln pens these words. He says, the will of God prevails. This is fascinating. Thank you, Pastor Heather Robertson, for sharing this with me this week. The will of God prevails. In great contest, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. True? True fact, right? Both may be, both may be, and one must be wrong, though. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time. In the present civil war, it is quite possible that God's purpose is something different from the purpose of either party. And yet the human instruments working just as they do are for the best adaptation of their effect uh, to affect his purpose. I think that's so interesting. Sometimes what we think is God's will and what the other side thinks is God's will, perhaps it's neither, Lincoln says. He says, I am almost ready to say that it's probably true that God's will... God wills this contest, meaning the war that they're in, the civil war, and wills that it shall not end yet by his mere power on the minds of his now contestants. He could have either saved or destroyed the union without a human contest, and having begun, 
He could give final victory to either side any day, yet the contest proceeds. It's interesting that Abraham and Lincoln's holding some interesting tensions here of like, you know, God could be on the side of the north or the south, or God could be on neither side, and maybe both of our positions are wrong. But yet he also seems to hold the same opinion that we see throughout our text in Judges today, that God's up there pulling the strings. That God could end the war any day. And also, guess what, Abe? You could end the war any day. Right? But sometimes it's easier for us to just say, okay, it's up to God. And sometimes it's not as easy to just say it's up to God. And that actually feels more comfortable because reality is if Abe had ended the war, perhaps slavery would still be alive and well today. I'm going to tell you what, that's, that's, a hard, that's a hard one. That's a hard text. It's a hard to grapple not just with our own history or judges' history, but our own present realities. As personally, my position, I am a pacifist. It's easy to be a pacifist when other people are being militarists to protect me so I could be a pacifist. It's a hard tension to live in, church. It's hard tension for me when I think about uh, the women's suffrage movements and the Stonewall movement for LGBT equality or, or the Black Panthers side of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and uh, uh, the not just Black Lives Matter movement but as well as uh, those who would be separate but equal and how oftentimes riots would rise up in order to say, we're tired. MLK would have said riots were the language of the unheard. When just speaking didn't do it anymore and riots were the only way to move something forward for the oppressed. I, I look at those stories and I think, what role did they play? And at the same time, I'm uncomfortable with the role that they played in moving the freedom of oppressed people, group forward, people groups forward. So as we grapple with this this morning, I, I, I want us to think about the story of Deborah and realize that, that there is nothing in the story that is perfect or clean, but there's also nothing in our story that's perfect or clean. So how does Deborah's example as one of the few female prophets in the Bible shape our faith this morning? How does the face of Deborah help us to capture a more clear picture of our faith that we ascribe to and that is part of our heritage and our history too? How does the face of Deborah's faith call us to a deeper understanding of our own faith to grapple with the gray and the color for me, Deborah reminds me that life is just not black and white. She lived in a world where women were not given a voice or authority over men, but yet she colored in that black and white stereotype and made an archive of our faith a little bit more colorful. For me, Deborah reminds me that how we live out our faith has always been messy, riddled with momentary victories that 40 years later remind us that winning the battle isn't winning the war. Because guess what? Yes, they were free. Yes, they got out of their oppressors for 40 years, the Canaanites, from the Canaanites, the Hebrew people did. But their freedom only lasted for 40 years until someone else came in and conquered them. And the cycle continued. So perhaps winning that little war wasn't actually winning the battle. And it can't, I can't help but stop and think about how as uh, folks are given equal rights, even in the U.S., in our context, within the black community, within the within, uh, women's suffrage movement that has continued, and women's rights movements, as well as the Black Lives Matter movement, we have been doing this for a long time. And yet... Maybe some battles have been won, but the war continues. And for me, I think Deborah reminds me that history and people often repeat themselves this morning. The, the words of Jesus continue to beckon and call us back to not hate, but for our judgments to be love as our song came today. For hate only leads to anger and bitterness, to war and murder. Deborah reminds me as a woman of faith 
um, about the women in faith in my life who were bold and courageous even when they didn't have all the answers. The women who were bold in faith in my life who held my hand when I was scared or had uncertainty or didn't know what I believed and walked me down a path. Deborah reminds me that God has always been and always will be actively working through the lives and faith and leadership of women. God always was and God always will be. We all want to know if God's on our side, right? I mean, if we're going to take people's lives, we'd like to know the the giver of life signs off on it. When we take moments of war or violence, it's a hard place to be. Because it tells a story about ourselves and it tells a story about our own history. The story of Deborah and Barak winning the battle against the Canaanites isn't isolated by itself. It feels triumphant, right? But it's not isolated by itself. It's part of a grand narrative that's being weaved and shown to us that you continue to do the same thing over and over again. Six cycles of it in just this book alone. To the point where when Jesus shows up, Jesus tells us, this isn't working. And over 2,000 years later, here we sit. Same cycles of violence and hatred towards one another. Fear of scarcity and the other and someone who's different. The oppressed rising up, looking for a way out. We still look and we watch on the news in the Middle East, the war between both Palestinians and the Jewish community of who should have the land and who should be there and who has the power and who the oppressor is and who the oppressor isn't. And we know that the nuance continues instead of the conversations of how can one live, not who should get the land, but how do both live in the land and treat one another. It's hard, it's nuanced, it's difficult. None of these faces of our faith that we've talked about thus far or will continue to talk about in our ancient story were perfect or understood the heart of God exactly the way that we should and give us a mirror of exactly who we should be in prescription of how we should live and see God. Bahal, Hogla, Noah, Milcah, Tersah, Shifra, Pua, all the people we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, none of those people were perfect. None of those people gave us a perfect image of the image of of the face of faith. None of them ever got it right, and guess what? Deborah never got it all right either. But they are a face of faith, not because they got it all right, not because their beliefs were perfect or because they gave us the exact image of God we're supposed to have, but because they loved God and loved themselves and their people enough to strive to try to understand the heart of God. They are a face of faith because of their diligent courage and it provides us just a snapshot. Each of these characters provide us, like, 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 like Deborah, provide us a snapshot of an inclusive God who is patient with us when we don't always understand it, when we don't always have a clear answer, when we don't always have a, an, a, an obvious way forward for how we're supposed to conduct ourselves or who and what we think God is okay with. So this morning, church, there's no bow to tie on this. Tidy and night. We would love, I think, in a world like this to have all this great sense of certainty. Mago is not a place that lives with a ton of sense of certainty. We live with a lot of uncertainty. As we celebrate Pride Month, I don't always like the words like everything's not black and white because it makes it sound bad because it's all gray. Like, gray's cute, but not always. Instead, maybe we could see it as like everything's colorful. Everything's colorful. You see pride flags waving perhaps this month, and maybe as you see those, may you be reminded not just of LGBT community, but just of the diversity of representation that we each bring in our own ways to whom and what the body and image of God is. 
as we try to have a clearer picture of who God is and who God created us to be. Like Deborah and like all the other characters we'll talk about in this faith, not getting it right, not getting it perfect, always evolving, trying to understand, messing up, looking back, never understanding. So let us understand that we stand upon the shoulders of Deborah and all those who can be for us, learning and growing and trying to discern and be faithful to the whispers of the Spirit. Let us stand upon her shoulders and the many faces of our faith, those who had heard it said and those who had never heard it said. That it may be said of us that we were one among many faces, shaping, growing, and changing and developing in our better understanding of what it looks like to be a face of Jesus and a face of faith in a world that is full of color and full of nuance. May people see God in us and may we see God in others that the picture of God may be more colorful.